Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. I am a pastor's kid, and I want to tell you straight out that everything you have heard about pastor's kids, it is totally and completely true. We are terrible. Well, not all of us. I'm kidding mostly. But I was that pastor's kid who thought like his dad owned the church. And uh, my favorite thing to do as a pastor's kid was to go to church when nobody else was there. My dad would go to his office and work, and that was my time to run around and explore, and most importantly, find out where they stashed the good candy. And one time in particular, my best friend Jacob got to go to the church with me, and we were doing our thing, terrorizing everything. We'd found the Fort Knox of candy, and we were doing the one thing that your mother told you to never do with a piece of candy in your mouth. What was that? Run. run. Exactly. We were running. And we were in the choir room, I'll never forget, when Jacob stopped running. I turn around and Jacob has this really funny face. And he's making these really funny noises. And I realize, huh, Jacob's choking. This is my time. I'm going to jump in here. I got to do something. And I remembered in this moment <laughs> something that I was not formally trained in, but that I saw in a movie called Mrs. Doubtfire. How, <laughs> how many of you guys have seen the scene with Robin Williams where he does what's called the Heimlich Maneuver? So I did my own version. I grabbed Jacob around the waist and I just started slinging him like this. And I still cannot believe it to this day, but that piece of candy shot out of his mouth across the room. And Jacob looked at me and he said, you just saved my life. And I said, yeah, you're never going to forget it either. But, you know, some of you have some way cooler stories of saving people's lives. I know some of you probably do that for a living, which is awesome. But it's so cool. It's such a special thing to be able to help someone in need, whether that's physically or financially. What about spiritually? I mean, we understand that our greatest need is sin, right? Our greatest need is sin. Sin is what holds us back from growing in our faith, yet we have an obligation to help those in need. Following Jesus is not a solo mission. Following Jesus is not a one-man sport. But we have a responsibility to serve one another, to love one another, to give to one another. But the one thing we often don't think about helping one another spiritually is helping one another deal with sin. So this morning, I want to share with you a very simple, practical way that you can help one another grow in your faith. Something you and I can do every day, very simply, to help one another grow and to fight sin. So 1 John chapter 5, we've been in this series together walking through John's first letter. And if you were here last week, my good friend Kevin Pragle preached a great message on confidence. Saying that we, needed to have, we need to have confidence in our salvation and in our prayers. In the verse last week, we saw that if we pray according to God's will, we can have confidence that God hears us and that he will answer. And in the following verses, which we're going to look at today, John gives us a specific example of a prayer that is according to God's will. So let's look at 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. And I need to forewarn you that these verses are widely considered to be the most difficult verses in 1 John and some of the most difficult in the entire New Testament. You are immediately, you're going to have some questions that are going to pop in your head. Uh-uh, not yet, okay? Let's get there together. Don't start Googling and Wikipedia and go to La La Land on me. We're going to get there together. We're going to break it down. I'm going to give you two practical things you can do in light of the text. But let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. 
Here's the passage, 1 John 5, verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Amen. You can be seated. When I first read this passage, I thought, wait, what? What's, what's going on here? And if you read your Bible, this is going to happen sometimes. Because the Bible is an ancient document from another culture written in another language. You're going to come across some verses that are real head scratchers. So first thing, I want to give you five things you can do when you encounter a difficult passage in Scripture. Here's the first thing you do. Number one, humble yourself in prayer. The Bible is infallible and inerrant, but you are not. Recognize your limitations. Admit the fact that we don't know everything. And pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible would also show you the meaning of the text. Second thing you can do when you find a difficult passage, check the context. The number one mistake that people make is grabbing one verse, plucking it out, and running with it. Okay? For example, Leviticus 11.7 says that you should not eat pork. Now, Kansas City. <laughs> we know if that were true, uh, we would be toast or burn-ins. <laughs> Terrible joke. Terrible joke. I, I tried it. But look, we know Leviticus 11.7 does not forbid us from eating pork today as Christians because of the context of the whole Bible. The Bible was not written in verses. It was written in books. Those are complete thoughts. But it's also pieced together into one story of God's redemption. So context is key. Third thing you need to do, use good resources. The internet, man's best friend and man's worst enemy. We know we can find some great things on there and some terrible things. So be careful and cautious what you use and what you trust. Fourth thing you can do, seek wisdom from the wise. Go to someone who knows more than you who's been a Christian longer than you, and ask their opinion, right? You're not the first person to struggle with a difficult verse, and you won't be the last, so get help. And the fifth thing you can do is trust in God. It's okay to walk away and say, hey, you know what? I don't fully understand this, but I'm going to trust that one day I will. I trust God's word despite my lack of understanding, and I'm going to walk in obedience to what I do understand. So I have attempted to do those five things, keyword attempt. In this passage. So let's just walk through this together. It starts out this way. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. This is John's primary point in this passage. He's addressing a particular situation where one Christian sees another Christian in sin. So what is a sin not leading to death? Well, first let's clarify that when John uses the words death and life in his writings, he's referring to eternal death and life. So this is pretty simple. A sin not leading to death is any sin that a follower of Jesus commits. Because for a follower of Jesus, all of their sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though we continue to sin because of Jesus, we are not in danger of sinning ourselves into hell. Praise God for grace. But that doesn't mean that sin is a non-issue. Because John makes clear we still need to deal with sin. Sin still causes damage in our lives. Sin still offends God. Sin still impacts our fellowship with him. 
So here's what John says to do when you see a brother or sister sinning. He shall ask and God will give him life. Pray. That's what we should do, pray. We don't gossip about it. We don't get angry and attack. We don't shame and look down on. We pray. Yes, there is a time to lovingly confront another believer. Matthew 18 talks about that. But even that is done in a spirit of prayer. When we see a follower of Jesus in sin, we should immediately pray and God will give them life. What a promise that our prayers can play a part in helping one another. But then John, oh John, knucklehead, he throws a wrench at us here at this next part. And he kind of says this as an aside, but he says, there's sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. Here's the part that everyone wants to know. What is the sin that leads to death, and have I done it? Right? We joke on staff that whenever you are presented with a difficult Bible question, you just respond, well, scholars are divided on that issue. And uh, I got to tell you this morning, when it comes to the sin that leads to death, seriously, scholars are divided on that issue. I'm not making it up here. Apparently, John did not see fit to give tons of explanation. The people who originally read this probably knew what he was talking about. We're a little in the dark. But let me give you the four most common views, including my view, which is the right one. Um, I'm kidding. But the four most common views of the sin that leads to death. The first is this. Some people believe the sin that leads to death is physical death. Basically, you sin so bad for so long, eh, God takes you out. Yeah, a little dark, but it happens a couple times in the New Testament, but we've already established the word death here is not physical. It's eternal, so that, that doesn't fit. The second view, some people believe that John is talking about a particular sin or a particular group of sins. They take a particular action and label it as unforgivable. Some might say that's murder or adultery or homosexuality. A somewhat common view we hear sometimes today is that suicide is an unforgivable sin. One of the first funerals I preached was for a seventh grade boy in our town who would walk to our church on Wednesday nights. And the night before the first day of school, he took his own life. And as I prepared my message, I wrestled with whether I should address this misconception or not. Now, I believe the young man was a believer based on his testimony and baptism in our church. So I decided to mention that his final act was not the one that determined his eternal destiny. Even though suicide is a sinful action, all sin is forgiven for those who are in Christ. Man, I'll never forget the people who came up to me after that service and said, thank you. Thank you for saying that because we've always heard that it's unforgivable. There's a particular church tradition that has historically used this passage and a few others to categorize sin into two types, venial sins and mortal sins. Right, venial sins are the common everyday sins like gossip. And mortal sins, though, are the ones that are much more serious, more intentional. Things like murder or adultery or, or even suicide. Mortal sins, in their view, cut you off from the grace of God. Therefore, they lead to death. That's the second view. The third view is that John is talking about any sin that is unconfessed. I remember a girl in high school arguing with me that if I were to lie to the teacher and then walk outside before I could confess it and get hit by a bus kind of a dark story, um, and die that I would go to hell because I didn't have a chance to confess my sin. And you can imagine how terrifying that view would be. And thankfully, it's not biblical. But Martin Luther, before he sparked the Reformation, he was a monk and he struggled with this. He, he was said to spend hours and hours every day in the confessional with the priest 
because he just could not remember and get out all the things he'd done wrong to the point where the priest would tell him, man, stop, like leave us alone, it's too much. But he was so afraid of God's judgment and sin. But he learned if God's forgiveness is up to our ability to confess everything, man, we're in trouble. Yeah, confession's important. The Bible tells us to confess sin. But confession is not the basis of God's forgiveness. Christ is. Here's the last view, the fourth one. The one I believe, based on Scripture as a whole, makes the most sense. The sin that leads to death is a steadfast refusal to believe the gospel. It is a continual rejection of the work of Christ. So the sin that leads to death is not a particular action, but rather it's an attitude. It is an attitude of disbelief and rejection of Jesus that results in eternal death. The sin that leads to death is similar to what Jesus called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin. That's what Jesus said, which causes a lot of debate too. But it all boils down to a rejection of the gospel, not just once, but all the way to the grave. So that means a follower of Jesus has no reason to fear the sin that leads to death. We can... Breathe a sigh of relief there. But what about this next part? Is John saying that we shouldn't pray for lost people? Well, again, looking at the whole of Scripture, that would be inconsistent and untrue. John doesn't say here, don't pray. What he's saying is that he's not addressing that issue here. There are other places in Scripture where it talks about prayer for the lost. But what he's saying is there is a sin that leads to death, but that's not my point here. I'll talk about that another time. I'm talking about Christians who sin. So, of course, we should pray for everyone. But how we pray for believers is different from how we pray for non-believers. For non-believers, we're not just praying for them to stop sinning and get their lives together. We're praying for them to be saved. We're praying for them to repent and trust in Jesus, and that's not something we stop praying for ever. So let's end by looking at two practical ways that we can pray for sinning believers. Here's the first. We pray for restoration. Restoration is the idea of taking something broken and restoring it to its original condition. We think about antique furniture or an old car. But what does it mean to restore people? Before we can understand restoration, we need to know why we need it. The Bible tells us that sin breaks. Sin breaks relationships. It breaks homes. It breaks communities. It breaks our very souls. And most importantly, it damages our fellowship with God. It's not that God stops loving us, but God is saddened and displeased when we sin. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. See, this is the part that we miss. Sin goes deeper than just a simple action. It's more than just a mistake or a behavior that we need to correct. Sin is a heart issue. It comes from our hearts. It infects our very souls. It's more like a disease that spreads to every part of us. So even the good things we do can have sinful motives. And sin is a big deal. We've we've kind of minimized it in our culture. Sin doesn't even exist, right? Culture says, hey, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me, I got to do what feels right. So there is no sin. But even in church, sometimes we we minimize it. But sin is really, it's a rebellion against God. It's breaking off the relationship, kicking God off the throne of your life and taking his seat. It is a holy offense and it's something that must be dealt with. We can't just ignore it or excuse it away. 
Because sin doesn't stand still. When we ignore it, it grows and consumes until we're destroyed. This is why we pray for restoration. What's broken needs to be made right. And the good news is God can take anything. No matter how badly broken, beat up, or bruised, God can take any relationship, any marriage, any family, any person, no matter how far gone, and he can restore them. God loves restoration. That's his business. In high school, my best friend's youth pastor was caught embezzling money from their church. Over a three-year period, he stole over $75,000. And the church considered handling it privately, which is what a lot of people do. But they knew biblically and legally it had to be made known. But they made a commitment from the beginning to see this man restored. So while the youth pastor spent nine months in prison, the church cared for his wife and his kids. They paid their mortgage. They paid their monthly bills. And his family continued to attend every week. When he was released from prison, they set up a group of men to hold him accountable to minister to him. And he went before the church and repented of his sin. And the church forgave him and restored his membership. And he still attends there to this day. That story was published and broadcasted as this radical story of forgiveness and restoration. But I think it really shouldn't be as unusual as it is. I mean, restoration of fallen believers should be a regular part of church life and not just for the real messed up people. Because you know what I found out? We're all real messed up people. So all of us should be confessing and seeking restoration with one another and with God. And if you're not doing that, you might be lying to yourself, to others. You know, so often what happens is we, we hide it when we, we have sin. We hide it. We're okay with talking about other people's sins or how bad the world is. But when we get personal, hey, 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 that's none of your business. I mean, who are you to tell me? I know what you've been doing, right? Rather than confessing sin, we pretend we fix ourselves up. Our Sunday best is more than just a wardrobe. We keep just enough distance from people so they don't see our problems. And we wear masks, metaphorical ones, to hide our true selves. And then we wonder why we aren't growing in our faith. We wonder why believers struggle and and fall away. We wonder why, why the church often looks like the world. It's because we refuse to help one another with sin. So restoration begins with prayer. I want to give you a couple things, a few things. You can pray for someone when you pray for their restoration. First, pray for their sin to be uncovered and confessed. When I was 16, my dad told me one time, casually, that he was praying for me. Wow, thanks, Dad. He said, yeah, I'm praying that if you have any sin in your life, that it would find you out. Good grief. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) I guess. Thanks. But, you know, I've since learned that having your sin exposed is a good thing. Occasionally I get the chance to counsel a teenager who's gotten caught up in sin. And I always tell them, hey, look, I know you don't feel this right now. But getting caught is the best thing that could have happened to you. I mean, getting caught is evidence of God's grace in your life. Because rather than God allowing you to continue in your sin and ruin your life, he has graciously exposed you so you can turn around. This is not a fun process. I mean, it's painful to have your sin exposed. But let me encourage you this morning. 
Don't hide your sin. That's the single worst thing you can do. Bring your sin into the light before someone else does. We've all seen it happen. We know the stories of people who who live secret lives behind closed doors until one day it just explodes and they're left picking up the pieces of their family and and their business and their church and their witness, everything. And I I know this personally, man. It's so easy to do. You, You sin for so long that you just become numb to it and you rationalize it and you excuse it away and it becomes normal and it grows and it grows until one day the lights get thrown on. And you see the wreckage that you've caused. Let me plead with you. And, and if you're struggling with a recurring sin, and I want to get specific, not to shame anyone, but to know, but for you to know that you're not beyond God's grace. But if you're struggling with pornography, if you're on the brink of having an affair, if you're being dishonest with your money, if you're harboring anger or spreading divisiveness over politics or these things we wear on our face, if you're lying to your family, if you're refusing to forgive someone, if you're stuck in worry and sinful fear, let someone know. Do not try and deal with this on your own. Confess it to God. Confess it to someone else and find grace. So we pray for confession. After that, we pray for the person to repent. And repentance is a churchy word. It's kind of fire and brimstone word. But all that means, it's a change of heart that leads to a change of action. Repentance is more than just feeling guilty and being sorry for what you did. Um, my, daughter, <clears throat> my daughter Charlotte is going to be three tomorrow. Pray for us. Um, but she has started saying, I'm sorry about everything. I mean, like any time we correct her in the slightest ways. I'm sorry, it's my fault, it's an accident. I'm sorry, Mama, I'm sorry, Daddy, just on and on and on. And it is so adorable, but it is also so phony. Um, it is. And it's a great habit for her to learn. Like, I'm, I'm so happy she knows that. But there's no heart change going on. She just knows what to say. How often do we do the same thing with sin? God, I'm sorry, it's my fault, it's an accident. And then we go right back to it again we got to pray for heart change that leads to action. That's what repentance is, but we don't stop there. Lastly, we want to pray for renewed love for Jesus. David prayed in Psalm 51.12, which is the psalm written after he did all that he did, and he's repenting, and he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what we want. Not just eliminating sin, but gaining a greater love for Jesus and joy in what he's done. Turning away from sin and turning to the arms of a glorious, forgiving Father. So that's the kind of content that should fill our prayers when we pray for restoration. But secondly, we pray with confidence. Look at verse 17 one more time. It says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This verse is the gospel in a nutshell. Because we have to ask the question, why doesn't our sin lead to death? I mean, one of the first verses I learned as a kid was Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Sin equals death. I mean, because our sin is an offense against the holy God, we rightly, fairly, squarely deserve his judgment. We deserve hell. And this means I should not be standing here today. Because <laughs> let me tell you, I've sinned in more ways than I can count. But here I am. 
How is this possible? I'm not been struck down. Why has my sin not led to my death? Well, the answer is simple. Because someone else died in my place. Someone else took my spot, my judgment, my punishment, so I could go free. Someone took my death so I could have life, and that someone is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, taking the judgment for our sin, so that through him all who repent and believe will have forgiveness and eternal life. That is the reason my sin does not lead to death. And that is the reason that we can pray with confidence. Listen, when you pray for a follower of Jesus, you can be confident that their sin is already forgiven at the cross of Christ. You can be confident that they have an open pathway to go to God because do you remember what happened when Jesus died? The veil was torn. And you can be confident that God will give them life because if he could raise Jesus three days after he died and he's still alive today, then he can give you life too. Jesus is the reason we pray with confidence. But it's not just because of what he did in the past. It's also what Jesus is doing right now. Get this. This, this is amazing. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Jesus is praying for you. He's at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34 says he is interceding for you right now. Jesus is praying for you. Think about that for a minute. Like, man, I think like if we could just grasp that one idea, think about how much would change in our lives. And I think about my own self, like, Micah, why are you afraid? Why do you doubt and worry when Jesus is praying for you? Why do you continue to sin and go back to these same things and put your time and, and life into things that aren't God when the Son of God is spending his time praying for you? Why are you lacking joy and peace? Why are you complaining about, oh, 2020, it's a pity party, it's so terrible. When Jesus is praying for you, you think his prayers aren't being answered? I think about the people at home, those who are in a high-risk category for this coronavirus, those who are caring for people who do have that concern, maybe who haven't even been out much since March. I think about you, and I want you to know Jesus is praying for you. You can pray for a sinning believer with confidence because Jesus is praying for them too. You are never praying for another Christian alone. And you can pray for a sinning believer because while you're praying for them, don't miss this, Jesus is praying for you. Let's go to the Lord now through Jesus in prayer.